Good morning again. I want to uh, say a special thank you to Kathleen, who uh, through long suffering got that together for us. So just a round of applause for <laughs> Kathleen. She was kind enough to invite Zoe to participate. And I don't know if you know you've we're paying attention, uh, but you can see that still and quiet at our house really aren't concepts that, that have been understood yet, so we're working on it, though. It's great to be in the house of the Lord. We're in Hebrews chapter 1, and I promise I won't keep us long, but you may not believe me. Um, I only have four pages today, so let me read Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four, and then we'll pray long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this day and your many blessings on us. And none greater than your son being sent to be our savior and Lord. And I pray this morning as we look at one of the most important aspects of your character, and your person, I pray that we would be attentive, that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be malleable by your word. That you would just pour out your grace by your spirit in this place. You would unite us in, our, in your truth. And that we would leave encouraged, strengthened and changed. And I pray these things in Jesus name for his sake. Amen. So last week, we talked about at length this concept of Jesus being appointed the heir of all things. The author of Hebrews says, Whom he, God, appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So we talked about that this means ownership. All rights belong to Jesus. He has the right of creator, right? Because it's through him that God created the world. He has the rights of redeemer because it is through him that God is reconciling the world to himself. He's the redeemer of all creation. And he's the right, he has the rights, he owns the rights of heir. Not only is he creator, not only has he redeemed creation, but in the end of all things, he will inherit all things. He is at the beginning, the end, the alpha and the Omega, this is Jesus. We talked about the fact that this is not optional for us. We don't get to choose, or you ought not 
see it as an option for you. Because Jesus is appointed the heir of all things, that means we are obligated to live our lives in light of that. He owns everything. Everything is being given over to him. He will rule and reign as manifest king forever. So our lives have, have to be lived or ought to be lived in light of that. Your dreams, your vision for your future, your plans, your career, everything, the way you raise your children, the way you interact with your friends should be under the canopy of Jesus being the heir of all things. It means we have to reevaluate our lives. Not just our lives and our choices, but the emotions and the feelings of our hearts, our motives. Do those make sense in light of Jesus owning everything and that it's his and that he will rule and reign as king? So we talked at length about that. Belonging to the kingdom of God is not just an issue of what you believe in your mind, but what but what you are living and how you build your life. So you can say that you're a believer, you can attend church and all of this, but what does your life look like on the inside and the outside and does it line up with Jesus being the Lord? And so now we come to this phrase. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And we'll start kind of in reverse. We'll start by asking this question. What is the glory of God? It's a phrase we throw around a lot. We use it in so many contexts. It's in almost every Christian hymn or song. And we say it in almost every prayer that we offer. We use the word in many ways. We say we want to glorify God. But what does that mean? Can we add any glory to a God who is all glorious? What are we talking about here? We say we want to glorify his name. Is that different than glorifying himself? God desires to be glorified, the Bible teaches us. But does that mean, are we saying that he is in need of something? And that we're the ones to provide it? An example of this, and pardon me if you find this offensive, but in the movie Elf, (laughs) you have Santa and he's trying to get his sleigh off the ground and if not enough people believe in Santa, then then his sleigh can't fly, right? And you you have this concept in in Greek mythology that the, the gods in some way depend on the offerings and prayers of their people. Is that what God is like? That He needs us to glorify Him? That if we don't offer Him glory, if we don't offer Him praise, that He has some lack or feeling of lack at least? Is that what we're saying? Is it just a redundant word? Right? If you, You could say something like, God is good. And I had a professor who challenged us on this in seminary, and he said, are we just being redundant when we say that? That God is good, are we just saying God is God? Because God, by definition, is good, because He's the source of all morality. Whatever He desires, whatever He prefers, that is what is good. So when we say God is glorious, are we just saying God is God? 
So we're just going to look at a few different passages in the Old Testament, and I'll summarize some of them, to try to paint a picture of what this concept of God's glory means. Because there's no passage you can point to in all of Scripture that gives us a nice, neat definition. Right? You can't go to a verse in Malachi, or a verse in Ezekiel, or a verse in Luke. So the glory of God is this that answers all the questions surrounding it. So the first passage I want to look at is from Psalm 97. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if you don't uh, want to or just want to stay where we are in Hebrews, that's fine. Psalm 97, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the people see His glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. And if you caught it in the middle, this is where what I would say is the unifying passage of this psalm. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the peoples see His glory. One of the most important aspects of God's glory is His righteousness. Or the fact that he is always right. Not only is he right in all his ways, he is resoundingly justified in all his works. The sense of this passage is that creation screams, as it were, the rock solid truth of God's righteousness. When you look at the world, when you perceive his creation, when you're looking at it through the eyes of faith or just objective perspective, it communicates the concept that God is right and just. 
And you might not see that clearly if all you pay attention to is the behavior of people. If you watch the news, if you see terrible things happen, hear about terrible things happening, you might cry out, how can God let this happen? But if you consider all of human history and you consider what is coming and you consider what creation is teaching us, there is a judge and he is always right. God is righteous. The heavens declare his righteousness. This is God's glory, that he is righteous and always right. Another passage we'll go to to see an aspect of God's glory is Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, verses 6 through 11. Again, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But I'll read verses 6 through 11. You have heard. Now see this, and I will... and. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. So, so this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he is telling the people of Israel, pay attention because I'm about to say something that I haven't said to you before. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known from of old, your ears have not been open, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I refrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God's name or the respect and the honor and the dignity do his name or what comes to our mind when we hear the name of the Lord, God deeply cares about that. So he's saying to the Israelites, I knew that you would deal treacherously with me. I knew that you would rebel. I knew that you would go astray, but I refrain my wrath. I defer my anger for the sake of my name. You see this when Moses intercedes for Israel. When he goes up to Mount Sinai and receives the law, he comes, Moses comes back down and the people are worshiping the golden calf. And God says, go over there, Moses. I'm going to destroy these people and I'll start a new nation out of you. And Moses prays and he says, what will the Egyptians say about you? If they hear that you brought your people out in the wilderness just to destroy them, what will they say about your great name? And the, the text says that God relented or changed his 
intentions from the disaster that he intended to bring to Israel. For the sake of his name, he defers his wrath. The gravity and reverence we ought to feel and the awe that should come over us when we think of his name is something that motivates him in the most fundamental way. I want to read a text from one of my favorite works, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's Christmas time, so it kind of fits. There's this amazing text. And the children, if you, if you know the story, the, you have four siblings, the Pevensey children, and they're uh, shipped away from London during the Blitz. And they find themselves in this magical world called Narnia. And there's the king of all the land, and his name is Aslan. And they're talking with a beaver, if you can let your mind imagine that. And the beaver, Mr. Beaver says this, They say Aslan is on the move, perhaps already landed. And here's what Lewis says, And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment Beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if something has some enormous meaning. Either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare or else a lovely meaning too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing that you could get back into the dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund, who had already thrown himself in with the evil queen, Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Now, it's not that there's something magical or ultra-spiritual about the actual syllables in the name Jesus Christ or even Yahweh. That's not it. The point is that with His name, we are speaking about a real person. Words mean things. He's a real person. When we say his name, we are attempting to connect our minds with the reality of God. It's as A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And God deeply cares that His name, when we think on Him, whatever language you're speaking, that awe and reverence happens in your heart. That is His glory. That's why He connects His name's sake with His glory. Another story, and I'll just summarize this one. It's a rather lengthy text, but you have the ark of God being stolen in 1 Samuel. 
Right? The, the Israelites are not being obedient to the Lord, and the Philistines come and attack, and they're like, oh, here's what we'll do. We'll go to the tabernacle, we'll grab the ark, we'll take it in front of us in battle, and then we'll win. And they had not repented of all their sin, and so they fall in battle, and the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines are real excited because they think they've landed a definitive defeat against Israel. So what they do is they take the Ark and they set it up in their temple to their god, Dagon. And if you remember the story, by the end of the first night, Dagon, their, their idol, had fallen over on its face before the Ark of the Lord. And so they stand it back up and they're like, that was weird. And then they leave and they come back and the next morning it's fallen down again and its hands are cut off and its head is cut off. And so they, and, and then a sickness and plague break out on that city. So they ship it to the next Philistine city and plague breaks out in that city and they ship it to the next and they're panicked so much by that time. They say, just get it out of here. So they send it on a cart with oxen, no driver, and it gets back to Israel. God brings other gods, little g gods, low. The glory of God is this concept of exclusivity, that He is the only God. And whatever idols we would set up in our hearts, whatever things we would desire or fear more than Him or respect more than Him, it is His desire to crush those. And not to be too graphic, but to even decapitate them. So what idols do we have in our hearts? Just as a moment of application before we get to that time in the message. Have things happened in your life? Difficult things? I'm not saying it's all as a result of sin. I don't think anyone can say that. But if you are in unrepentant sin and terrible things are happening in your life, take heart. That means God is working on you to bring you to repentance. If you're running in absolute rebellion and there's nothing bad happening in your life, you should be very afraid. We also see the glory of God contrasted with the nature of sin. And there's not really a, a main passage that I would go to. It's, re it's really in the entire first five books of the Bible, and then lived out in the rest of the Old Testament in the sacrificial system. Have you ever thought of what it would have felt like to be a Jew when the offerings and the sacrifices were being made on a daily, weekly, monthly, and annual basis? What that would have smelled like? What that would have looked like? Your entire culture, your entire economy is built around this concept of sacrifice. You couldn't even take a goat from your own herd that wasn't even meant for a sacrifice and kill it and eat it until you did it in front of the tent of meeting or wherever he had set his name. Everything was connected in some way to this concept of purification that we, because of our sin and rebellion, we're impure, dirty before the Lord, and we have to have this intermediary or this thing in between us and the holiness of God, this veil where offerings and sacrifices are done continually on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly basis, and the smoke keeps going up. I mean, it's, it's death and blood and burning, and it's not pretty. 
And that's that, that grotesque picture is what we should also see in the cross. That the glory of God is displayed in the horrific event that takes place on that day. That this is sin. This is rebellion against God. And it takes something like this. This, this is how bad we are. That it took this to make it okay for us to be in God's presence. We also see the glory of God depicted in the creation of humankind. The psalmist actually picks up on this and the author of Hebrews takes it a step further, but just in the context, he says, you made him for a little while lower than the angels and crowned him with glory. We know from the Genesis account of creation that man is set up to rule or reign in God's favor and as God's steward over all of creation. So the the difference between you and your intellect and your mind above the concrete that this building is sitting on, the concrete has no mind, it has no will, it has no desires, no plans for its life. But us humans, we're that far above all of other creation. And they say we're not that much different than apes. We're just barely smarter than dolphins. But I don't see dolphins dreaming and organizing and building temples and houses. Building complex layers of relationships, a legal system. You don't see any of that in the animal kingdom. So as far as... Man is over creation in terms of glory or intellect. That is how high God is saying he is above all creation and even more so. That even our minds, our best thoughts can't even compare to what the authors of Scripture would say, the folly of God. For the folly of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. You also see this concept of God's glory used in Scripture contrasted with light. Light is used as a symbol of God's glory. Paul says it this way, speaking of God or Jesus Christ, he says, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. John says it this way, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If you can imagine a blazing center of such powerful light that you can't even approach it. That his holiness, his brilliance, his majesty is so great that you can't even make progress if you tried to get close. God told Moses, no man can see my face and live. Lastly, the glory of God is also contrasted or compared to his eternality. You can go to Job chapter 38. You know the story of Job. He was a righteous man more righteous than anyone else in all the earth at that time, the text indicates. And God allowed 
the enemy to bring great trial and loss into Job's life. And after a while, Job gets upset. He doesn't understand why God has brought this into his life. He wants to, as it were, hold court with God and to question how he can still be just and bring these trials into my life. And Job re- uh, God responds to Job in chapter 38. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further. And here you shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out. It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanses of the earth? Declare if you know all this. You can try if you want to. It's a good exercise just for worship to comprehend a being, a mind, a person who sees all time from eternity past to eternity future as an eternal present. That he exists with his perspective, all time and all space before him at once. And it doesn't wear him out. His eternality gives us a glimpse of what his glory is. It should color that picture that he is before all time and he will be here for all time. And he was there in the beginning laying the foundations of the earth. So the big message of Job for us when we stand before the glory of God is creature, know your place. So now, we'll get back to the first of the phrase. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus Christ, this one through whom he spoke, is the radiance 
of the glory of God. So everything that we've said about the glory of God leading up to this point, I want you to think that Jesus himself is the radiance of the glory of God. This is the only time in the New Testament this word is used. Radiance. What is he saying? You could literally translate it something like this, perhaps. The engulfing brightness of the glory of God. And it feels somewhat redundant with everything that we've just said about the glory of God. How can I intensify that any further by saying the, it's almost like saying the radiance of the radiance. And this is what John gets at in his gospel in the first chapter. No one has ever seen God. Just like God said to Moses, no man can see my face and live. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And this is what the author of Hebrews is getting at as well. God has spoken to us now by His Son. But be careful. Because in this, we can think that Jesus is like a junior varsity version of deity. That God is incomprehensible, He's transcendent, we can't know Him, He's too glorious, we can't look at His face, and so God gave us a compact or little version of that that's digestible in Jesus. So we get the same stuff, maybe, but just in smaller doses, right? And that is not what Scripture is saying. Because why would the author of Hebrews say that he is the radiance of the glory of God? He's not the transistor or or the translator of the glory of God into human terms. He's the radiance of the glory of God. You see this in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to them, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So in Jesus Himself, in His life, in the way He interacts with sinners, in the way He lives His perfect life, in the way His passion takes over at the end and He dies in our place, in His resurrection, in His very words, we have the radiance of the glory of God. And you understand that the posture of your heart, it's whether or not you can understand it and see it. It's not that Jesus dumbs it down for us. He makes it even more brilliant. He's not like the the eclipse glasses that we can put on and, and attempt to see the sun by shielding its brilliance. He gives us new eyes so that we can perceive it. And I know I've gone longer than maybe you've anticipated. Let's just go to a few Points of application. The first one, and I've, I've been harping on this since the beginning, don't look for spiritual fireworks. Look for holiness and righteousness. 
So as Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practice steadfast love and righteousness in the earth. And in these things I delight. There is nothing more spiritually exalted and meaningful than bringing delight to the I am. And you are invited into that by knowing who he is and knowing his character in Jesus Christ. Second, we need to update our categories for God. We, we need to think more exalted thoughts about him. As I was going through and trying to paint a picture of what the glory of God is, did, was any of that jarring to you? Did any of it not set well? Tozer again says it this way, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. I'll say that again. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment or thinking or or presenting ideas to your mind about God that are unworthy of him. And this isn't just a harsh command, you know, this, this can feel very heavy. This is an invitation to know God. This is our great treasure that we have been given access to see the brilliance or the radiance of the glory of God in this one, Jesus Christ. Third, just reconsider or reevaluate what you think about Jesus. Are you like Philip? Do you seek or desire something more than God's revelation of himself in Jesus? Do you need a spiritual high mountain? You know, overcoming, overwhelming spiritual experience to know God? God's spoken to us by His Son, and He is the radiance of the glory of God. There's nothing better. Fourth, proclaim this God. If God is as glorious as I just uh, attempted to explain, and if Jesus Himself is the radiance of that glory, the only fitting response for someone who knows Him is to proclaim it. When we talk to our non-believing friends and neighbors and family and your believing friends and neighbors and family, are we using language that is fitting for a God this glorious? Do you preach a tiny, puny God in how you speak of Him? Is He your cosmic butler in the way you talk about him in relation to you? Or is he the king of the universe, existent for all time, knowing all things? When your children ask you why, which is all the time, why should I do that? Why? Why? Do you respond with this kind of truth? Or do you take the easy road and tell them something like, because I said so? 
This is my commitment in preaching. I'm trying to paint with as big of a brush as I can find with the words I put together and find the biggest canvas I can to present God as glorious and as powerful as I possibly can and trust that the Spirit transforms hearts by that sight of Him. That as we see the glory of Christ revealed in Scripture, that is what changes hearts. That is what can reconcile marriages. That is what can avert your life from disaster. And lastly, if you're a Christian, or if you're not, when you come face to face with a God this glorious, the only proper response is repentance. Isaiah 6 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost or I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Seeing God's glory as the Bible teaches it has a very clearly defined proper response, and that is to abhor sin. To be sorrowful over our sin and to turn to Christ, that one who is the radiance of the glory of God, and find forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus and that he is the radiance of the glory of God. That everything we could ever want to know about you, Father, is found in Jesus Christ. And ask that we would speak of you in ways that honor you. And I pray that we would teach our children in ways that would honor you. And I pray that we would all of us, every one of us, repent. In Jesus' name, amen.